Good morning. It's certainly an honor to be with you all. Um, I'd had a little bit of hope that most of you would leave <laughs> and that the few remaining that were here would be asleep by now. But you look awake, and so I just ask you to bear with me. Speaking on a subject like this is a subject that is somewhat controversial for some. It's somewhat uh, mentally uh, taxing for some because it deals with a subject near to us as humans, and that's the idea of our emotions. And so you, when you begin to ask questions about emotions and possibly the emotive life of God, all of a sudden you may be dealing with things that are really wild in the context of the doctrine of God. And scripture has its way of dealing with this, and my hope this morning in a short period of time is not to explain to you every single thing about the doctrine of divine impassibility, but it is a hope to give you a context to where you will be able in scripture and in all that you understand about who God is, to interpret scripture rightly, to make an appropriate decision about understanding who God is, and that God is not a God of change. And I think that's a very good basis for us to begin with. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 46. I want to read a few passages to you from Isaiah 46, and we'll pray and begin. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 1. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God 
and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. And bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Let's pray. Our one and true, great and mighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all glory be unto you, the one true living God. There is none like you, and we glory in you alone. Lord, we ask your mercy upon our minds this morning. They may be thinking of other things. They may be starting to percolate about the thoughts of what we have to go back to in a few hours or tomorrow. Will you give us just a little bit of time this morning to consider who you are that we would not stray from the truth of your word in declaring that you are the one true living God and there is none like you. Lord, please use this preacher for your glory alone. For my mind is weak and it is weaker every day and every year. But your word is the truth forevermore. And we ask for your spirit to deal with our minds. That the preacher would be used and the hearer, the hearer would be encouraged, convicted, strengthened. And ultimately you would gain the glory of all these things. We pray this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Scripture is often very clear and plain on many subjects, including who God is. Yet sometimes it presents us with difficulties in understanding and knowing God. These difficulties arrive due to our comprehension issues and God condescending to us through intelligible languages regarding who he is. He graciously chose language as the means by which to reveal himself. Yet a language that is intelligible to us is not capable of revealing exhaustively and completely who God is. Therefore, we are confronted with difficulties and at times apparent contradictions in Scripture. How do we solve some of these issues? Especially when our confession states that God is without body, parts, or passions. And scripture in places seems to indicate a different picture of God. As God without body and parts have been previously explained to you, I have the task of building upon that foundation. I will seek to answer the question, what does it mean that God is without passions? 
It's important that you think about the simplicity of God that was spoken to you last night, and not only in that context, but in the context of our confession. It's important that you remember the things that Nathan spoke to you about the Trinity. When we're considering God is without passions, this is the context of the one whole that is built in the fullness of the doctrine of God. We cannot escape these truths and see God properly. By way of introduction, I want to answer two questions just briefly. Number one, what are passions? You may see multiple definitions according to many different dictionaries. Passions are emotions, passions are desires, passions are affections, passions are sufferings. It is important for us to know that each of these definitions ascribes some type of change in a person. Emotions are change. Desires are change. Affections are change. Sufferings are change. If you think about it for a minute, it's interesting. God is without body, parts, or passions, comes in the confession before even the confession ascribes immutability to God. So already, before immutability is mentioned specifically, the confession is denying change in God. To say that God is without passions is to already state God does not change. How can you get more scriptural than that? I've often found for many people when we deal with some of these doctrines, they begin to get really, really upset because they're saying to you, yeah, but scripture, yeah, but scripture. In those years where we were discussing this at length, it was a very difficult discussion because... Historically, as Baptists, we've been named by many historians as the people of the book. And is that not true of us? It is, right? We love the Bible. We adhere to the Bible. The Bible means everything to us. And yet, if we don't learn how to interpret it properly according to genre, according to context, we will misinterpret many passages. Haven't we seen over the years that churches have come up with definitions of the doctrine of election from Romans 9 that somehow this was attributed only to Israel? And yet when we came to see the doctrine of election rightly, we looked at that by context and said there's no way. Paul's not dealing with ethnic Israel here. And as a matter of fact, in Romans 9... He says, all Israel is not Israel. Interpretation is so important to every doctrine, including this one. And when the confession boldly states God is without body, parts, and passions, it is standing with Scripture and saying, I, the Lord your God, do not change. Well, there's a second question in introduction. How are passions in man and God linked to the Scripture? Well, Scripture uses words 
And those words certainly have meaning. Scripture uses words that we understand. But when explaining who God is, we should not take scriptural, scriptural words and apply them to a, with a one-to-one -one correlation to God. Hopefully this morning I'll give you three points that will show this very clearly. That we need to be careful taking words and applying them to God in a one-to-one -one correlation. If we're not careful, we'll never understand who God is without passions. So to begin this, I want to give you a succinct definition from uh, Dr. Sam Renahan of what God without passions means. God does not experience emotional changes either from within or affected by his relationship to creation. That's one of the most succinct definitions we have. I certainly commend to you his little work uh, on divine impassibility. Matter of fact, that book is so helpful not just for us, but it's for our people. He wrote that well enough that it, it, it's helpful to our people. Matter of fact, Several years after this began, we had a number of people in our congregation, even people, uh, older people who were really struggling with this doctrine. They read that book and came back to our, our elders and said, this is really so helpful. So I commend it to you. As pastors, what I commend to you, though, is his reader on divine impassibility. Go look historically at all of the different theologians through church history who have held to this doctrine of divine impassibility. And they held to it scripturally. Some people say, well, you're developing a philosophical doctrine. Does it have a philosophical context to it? Certainly. But if we're not careful and we act as though the scripture can't be interpreted according to proper context, we'll act as if we never think philosophically. God is the one that developed reason. Is he not the one who created our brains and our minds? We should not be afraid of reason. Theologians have not been afraid of reason as long as your reason is informed by the scripture. We will see this morning three thoughts that are helpful to us. We've already read one of these scriptures, but number one, scripture explains God is not like us. Scripture explains God is not like us. God tells us he cannot be compared to any other being. He plainly says this in Isaiah after he questions them and says, Who would you liken me to? Who can I be compared to? He says, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The same is true in Psalm chapter 50, when God is calling out to his people through the psalmist, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you I am God, your God. The people of Israel for centuries and 
time and time again kept going back to their idols. They would never leave them. They would create more and they would leave the high places and the Asherah was always there and they, they, would, they would go back to it time and time and time and time again and God would call them out. Always reminding them, I am God. That's interesting, isn't it? I am the one God, your God. Later in that same chapter, he says, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. And then he says, I will reprove you. What's he going to reprove them of? The thought that he was like them. He's reproving them of that thought because our full desire as sinful humans is to make a God like us. This is what we want to do. We want to have a God like us. This is liberal theology in the early 20th century worked out to the nth degree that we would have this God like us, the God who suffers like us, so that he can be one like us and reach to us, and yet this God will not help us. A God who suffers gives us nothing. God not only tells us he is not like us, but he tells us he cannot be compared to any other idols. In the context of Isaiah 46, this is the whole issue. Think about it for a minute. The children of Israel are always going back to their idols. They're always forming new idols. And what are they doing every time they do this? They're saying... God, we want to compare you to this idol we've made. Well, what's the problem with those idols? We read one of my favorite psalms last night. Psalm 115. I was, I was just a second late walking in, and I hear Kurt reading, and I come in here, and I'm like, yeah. What's the problem with these idols? They've made them with eyes, but they do not. They've made them with ears, but they, they do not hear. They've made them with mouths, but they do not. God says, I will not be compared to any other idols. I am not like them. I hear, and I speak, and I see. But even if God says, I speak, and I hear, and I see, oh no, we're confronted with a language problem, aren't we? Number two, Scripture explains God in language that resembles us. Scripture explains God is not like us, and yet Scripture explains God in language that resembles us. When we look at Scripture, and I... I, I I confess to you men, when I, I taught impassibility to our people, I did eight sessions on impassibility. Mainly that was because I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> it was years ago and I'm working through this and you're doing things and trying to figure it out. 
But I still confess to you this morning, it's hard to say all of these things in 45 minutes to an hour. If we had time, we would go through multiple scriptures because I want you to see this is a biblical doctrine. But when we're looking at these scriptures, we don't have time to turn to every one of them, but I want you to think of the ideas proposed to us in scripture. There is scripture that speaks of God having location. And yet, what do we know of God? He is omnipresent. Genesis 4, 16, Exodus 19, 17 through 20, 20, 21. There's scripture that speaks of God as having motion. Genesis 17, 22, 18, 33, Psalm 47, 5, 68, 7, Micah 1, 3, Habakkuk 3, 3. We have scripture speaking that God has a face. He has nostrils, he has a mouth, lips and tongue, shoulders, hands and arms. Psalm 2.4 even says God exercises laughter. This has not been hard for us over the years to explain this scripture because we've used a word called anthropomorphism. And everybody's been fine with that word. But if you'll go back and you spend time reading, what you'll find out is, as most solid historic theologians have wrapped up together the idea of anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. There's not generally a separation. Anthropomorphic language dealing with God being shown to us in Scripture by way of analogy by using human parts or body parts. And yet, Scripture also speaks to us in this emotional language where God is spoken or revealed to us by way of this emotion. Scripture portrays the context of emotional change or passions. Every human emotion, one writer says, furthermore, is also present in God. He goes on to show that God is shown in Scripture as rejoicing, having sorrow, grief. The Scripture says God is jealous. Is that not a human emotion? Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. We all know this section of scripture well, but I take you here to show you in just one brief passage how difficult these things can be if we don't think rightly about interpreting scripture. Things on earth had gradually gotten so bad, so awful, sin had degraded the whole of not just humankind, but the earth itself and the context of the animals. And God looks around at all of these things and in verse 6 he says, the Lord was sorry. Some of your versions say repented or relented. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. We have scripture that tells us God has hands, he has nostrils, he has body parts. We have scripture that tells us that God is grieved. How do we deal with this? 
If you take that to be a one-to-one -one correlation, and let's just take anthropomorphic language for a minute, we certainly would not say that God literally actually has a hand, right? A physical true hand. Or he has a literal true set of eyes. That would cause all kinds of problems with the doctrine of God and divine simplicity. If we begin developing a, a, a physical body for God, now what we've done is we've limited God. We have to throw out his omnipresence. If God has a mind like ours, it's a limited mind and we have to throw out his omniscience. Think for a moment. Scripture tells us about the eternality of God. That's scriptural language that God is eternal. What do I do with that? If he's limited and is eternal, I have to begin for a moment to think through the important issue of condescension. Number three, Scripture explains God in merciful condescension to us. Scripture explains God in merciful condescension to us. How does he do this? Well, I think Herman Bovink here is helpful. He shows that anthropomorphic language permeates the whole of Scripture. He says, for that reason, the words he employs are human words, speaking of the Scripture, the words in Scripture. For the same reason, he manifests himself in human forms. From this it follows that scripture does not just contain a few scattered anthropomorphisms, but it is anthropomorphic through and through. From the first page to the last, it witnesses to God's coming to and searching for humanity. I encourage you to start reading your Bible in a way that you see these anthropomorphisms. Start recognizing the language, God was grieved. Start seeing the idea where God feared something. Well, now, wait a second. How can the sovereign of all things fear anything? then we began to start to see that what God has done in Scripture is He has condescended to us. He has given us a way to know Him that we could identify, and yet at the same time, He's not limiting Himself. He's coming to us to say, here is who I am, and yet I am not like you. Herman Bovink says in another place, we would not know God or understand his grace if he did not speak to us in human language. The problem with this doctrine is not God because the Lord our God does not change. The problem with this doctrine is us. We have to recognize that God uses creaturely language to describe all of who he is, including his attributes. And when he describes his attributes in context, there's oftentimes he uses creaturely parts. When we think about 
God telling us about his almighty power, how does he often express it? By the hand of God or the right hand. Scripture even begins to talk about not just the love of God in a context of using the word love, but it often talks about the heart of God. Even sometimes God is dealing with something so drastic with the people of Israel, it talks about his intestines. You notice we don't have problems with saying, well, that can't be. God doesn't have intestines. Well, why would we have a problem with anthropathic language and saying that God doesn't grieve like a man? God doesn't relent like a man. It's words to help us grab hold, but they are not meant for a one-to-one correlation. I would never say, I have a hand, God has a literal hand. Because he said in scripture he has a hand. I would never do that, even since I was a child and brought up in a Southern Baptist church. I had Sunday school teachers who taught me, God doesn't have a literal hand. This is God teaching us about his power. I can remember Mrs. Pugh, one of my early Sunday school teachers, saying that and drawing a little picture and us all going, ah. If Mrs. Pugh understood it, can't we? Can't we express these things to our people to help them understand even anthropopathic language is a condescension to us? Furthermore, it's not only a condescension, we have to understand as most theologians recognize it, it's an accommodation. It's for our benefit. God is accommodating us in who we are. Not only as human beings, as creatures, because that's the creator-creature distinction, but he's accommodating to us in our sinful context. We don't get too upset about God being called a shepherd, do we? But you would never say that God is literally walking around in a pasture with a staff, literally, with a bunch of sheep, literally. It's imagery, it's metaphor. It's figurative. But those figures matter and it doesn't lessen God. I had someone say to me, you're heading into liberalism with this doctrine? No, I'm heading into conservatism to the nth degree. Because I believe the Lord our God cannot and does not change. He doesn't even change emotionally. Think about the idea of God as Father. That's just anthropomorphic language. And if we're not careful, if we take those ideas too far, we can have real problems. 
I'll never forget early on trying to work through this because I, I heard some of the, the rumblings on the internet uh, from different sources, and it was, must have been around 2008 or so, there was somebody that came to me and I, I began to talk about the doctrine of God and God the Father, and, and I was working through some of that and a man came to me and he said, Brandon, years ago I had a pastor try to explain God the Father to me on the basis of a human father. And he said, Brandon, I didn't understand that because my human father was terrible. The point of God explaining himself or condescending or accommodating to us and calling himself father is not for us to make a one-to-one correlation. Because not all human fathers are the same. And even the ones that are good and decent, even believing fathers are still imperfect and sinners by nature. And some, by God's grace, are saved. I hope you begin to see anthropomorphic language in the combination of the whole so you can begin to interpret Scripture in a way and see if we're going to say God is omniscient and omnipresent, if we're going to say he's omnipotent, he cannot change. He doesn't morph from a physical figure into a spirit. He just is spirit. Therefore, he cannot morph and have more wrath at one time and less wrath at another. He cannot morph and have A little more love at one time and a little less love. Oh, wait. The scripture helps us, doesn't it? God is love. This is pertaining directly to who he is in his infinite being. This one infinite essence, unchanging in that essence. There's nothing in the very essence of God that will change. He is just He is good. He is wrath. He is love. If I begin to take God as love and allow God or make him into a God that has ebb and flow emotionally, I'm fashioning my own God. I'm fashioning a schizophrenic God. I'm fashioning a bipolar God. God said, don't fashion me. I am not like you. So take my words and understand, whatever you know of love, in me it's a perfection. And you can't even fathom the kind of love I have for my people. You get just a glimpse in the word love in Scripture, and yet in the fullness of Scripture, it ought to just draw you to your knees that I would love you as a sinner. I am holy, and I love you. What one of us deserves that love? I have a very loving wife. But you know what? There are days I'm hard to deal with. And I bet if you asked her and she could have a moment of honesty, 
she would say, you know what, right now I don't love him like I did yesterday. <laughs> and you know what, I wouldn't blame her. I'd say to her, you know what, hon, you have a right to that. Because I've basically been a big old pain in the rear today. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> and that comes from somebody that doesn't know me as well as she does. Help your people understand anthropomorphic and anthropathic language rightly and the condescension and accommodating nature of that language. And when they begin to see that rightly, they'll begin to have a better knowledge of God that convicts them and strengthens them because they will really understand a God who does not change. Turn with me to Malachi 3.6. I want you to see it. I want you to look at it. You've seen it thousands of times, but I want you to see it. In Malachi chapter 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. And what's the reasoning? Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. If God emotionally changes, we're going to have a problem. Because if God emotionally changes, his covenant is not pure. His covenant promises are not pure. There will be some who go to hell based on an emotional wrath of God when the wrath was at the highest. And there will be some that slipped through the covenant because his wrath was at the lowest. No. No. He does not change. There is no intra-change in God. He doesn't have any motive life. He doesn't think emotionally like a man. And it's too our good that that is true. And you know what? You and I don't even affect God emotionally. Think about it. There's nothing going on on this planet right now, including the individuals, that is happening with everything that's taking place that God emotionally is in, a, in flux. We look around and we read things and what happens to us? We're in flux. It takes me one news story to go, <gasps> what's about to happen? Nope, not with God. He does not change. And it's to the covenant good of his people that they would not be consumed. He will not lose one of them. I want to close with this idea. If you are concerned that our God could not know us and could not deal with us well, if you are concerned about the idea of suffering, point your people to Christ and his humanity. Everything your people need to know about suffering 
has been manifested in the incarnate Christ. This is why the doctrine of the humanity of Christ, properly understood, is so important to us. We can often talk of his deity, and we've done well to do it, and we need to understand it well, but we need to understand the humanity of Christ very well also, that those two natures are both real and true. They are not mixed or composed in any way. We need to understand the context that God the Son took on flesh. It was an assumption of human flesh. He was not added to or subtracted from. And yet when he assumed that human flesh, he came. And the way the Hebrews writer puts it to us was that even in the temptation, it was a suffering. Just having to walk on this earth among men and women like you and I was a suffering because he was exactly what the human nature is in the proper context without sin. This is why the old writers say he is very God of very God and very man of very man. As we think about these things, and we consider the context of them. I ask you to remember, never, never forget anthropomorphic language in the whole, including anthropathism. Help your people to understand it. I ask you to remember that God is immutable, but it starts even with the whole of his context. Not just the idea of an, that which is attributed to him, but from his very divine simplicity. He is without body, parts, or passions. And I ask you to remember to be thankful that he is without passions. So that you and I are not consumed. There is much more that could be said. I'm probably not even the one to say it by even... A small margin. But I hope this is a way for you to think about these things and carry it back to your people. The Bible is true. We love the Bible. The Bible give us, gives us exactly what we need. But never, never, never make a one-to-one -one correlation between human language and God. Because he is not like us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.